Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. If we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here. And just so you can have an idea, if you're kind of new to us, as to what's going to go on the rest of our time together, well, I'm going to do a teaching, going to be 45 minutes or so, and then I'm going to say a benediction, okay? And it's going to be pretty simple today. Um, please don't leave since there may not be another song and all you've got is me. Actually, there's more than me. You're going to like this. Uh, so, um, we've been in this series called Parabolic since early September. Uh, the parabolic teachings of Jesus are, par- are teachings based on his parables. And, um, Jesus gave us a very unique promise uh, as to what would happen if we would focus and attempt to understand his parabolic teachings, his parables. He said that we would see things we wouldn't see otherwise, we would hear things we wouldn't hear otherwise, we would understand with our hearts, and then we could turn and be healed. We can live the full, flourishing life God dreamed for us. And so today, I want to continue with this series. Next week will be the last Sunday of this series, but I want to continue with this series uh, by teaching uh, about a parable called the parable of the rich fool. The parable of the rich fool. I'll read the parable in a few minutes, but uh, many of us are already familiar with this story about a guy who became very wealthy but made his wealth all about himself and his own pleasure and consequently was deemed by God to be a rich fool. Scripture repeatedly indicates, and we know from our own life experience and knowledge of human nature, that there are unique temptations to having an abundance of money and things. Yet, if we're honest, I think, the temptations that come from being rich are temptations that most of us Uh, probably all of us at some point in time are only too willing to face. We repeat the words of the Lord's Prayer with great sincerity, but when we get to the part that says, and lead us not into temptation, if we were really truthful, we'd pray, and lead us not into temptation except the temptations that come from being really, really rich. We'd say, Lord, just help me learn how to face those temptations. We're like Tevye in the musical Fiddler, on the roof. If you remember Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof, someone told him that money is the world's curse. And he responded, may the Lord smite me with it and may I never recover. <laughs> and then he sings that famous song, well, what does he sing? If I were a rich man, all day long I'd biddy biddy bum If I were a wealthy man Wouldn't have to work hard If I were a biddy biddy rich Idle diddle diddle Idle man, I'd build a big tall house with rooms by the dozens right in the middle of the town. A fine tin roof with real wooden floors below. There would 
would be one long staircase just going up and one even longer coming down and one more leading nowhere just for show I'd fill my yard with chicks and turkeys and geese and ducks for the town to see and hear squawking just as noisily as they can and each loud bagheek and bagark and gobble and honk would land like a trumpet on the ear as if to say he lives a wealthy man If I were a rich man, all day long I'd If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. If I were a bitty bitty rich, idle diddle 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 man. I see my wife, my gold, looking like a rich man's wife with a proper double chin, supervising meals to her heart's delight. I see her putting on airs and strutting like a peacock. Oh, what a happy mood she's in! Screaming at the servants day and night. The most important men in town will come to phone on me. They will ask me to advise them like a Solomon the wise. If you please, Rebdavia, pardon me, Rebdavia. Posing problems that would cross a rabbi's eyes. And it won't make one bit of difference if I answer right or wrong. When you're rich, they think you really know. If I were rich, I'd have the time that I lack to sit in the synagogue and pray. Maybe have a seat by the eastern wall And I discuss the holy books With the learned men Seven hours every day That would be The sweetest thing of all If I were a rich man all day long I'd biddy biddy bum If I were a wealthy man I wouldn't have to work hard Lord who made the lion and the lamb You decreed I should be what I am Would it spoil some vast eternal if I were a wealthy man.
Ladies and gentlemen, Adam Monley. He starred as Javier and Les Mis on Broadway and many other roles. Justin Hornback, who uh, has conducted and played for all kinds of, like Bette Midler and Hello Dolly. What are you doing now? Funny girl right now, conducting and playing. Thank you guys so very much. <laughs> so, uh, Jesus said, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And I think we might respond to that, I want to be the rich person who God impossibly saves. And in a sense, we are all that rich person who Jesus impossibly saved. It's said that if you earn an income of $40,000, you earn more than 99% of the people in the world. If you earn an income of just $13,000, you are in the top 10% of people in the world. So there are those of us who make $13,000 or $40,000 a year and are rich from a global perspective. And then there are those of us who make hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars a year or those who are worth millions of dollars, people who would be considered wealthy by most any standard. Regardless, we need to acknowledge that there are unique temptations to having money and probably more temptations the more money we have. There is a lot said about money in the Bible. In fact, as we've been teaching through this parabolic series, I've actually had to work hard to avoid doing a parable about money. This is the only one I'll do because Jesus told so many parables about money and possessions. And so I think I've done about 15 parables over the last couple of months, and this is the first one that I'm doing about money and the only one I'll do about money, but it was actually hard to avoid the parables about money because Jesus talked a lot about money, and the Bible talks a lot about money. Now, wealth is often portrayed as a blessing from the Lord. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, for instance, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth. But there is a lot of cautionary language about money as well. For instance, Proverbs eleven twenty eight: those who trust in their riches will fall. I mean, there's a pretty good balance that kind of displays the breadth of what Scripture teaches about money and things. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth. Those who trust in their riches will fall. This week in my devotions, I happened to be reading through James. James, the half-brother of Jesus, bishop of the church in Jerusalem, wrote with some harsh language about rich people when he said the rich should take pride in their humiliation 
since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Thankfully, he doesn't end it there. He ends it there and goes on to talk about other things for a, a, a few paragraphs or a couple of chapters as we know it. But then he picks the subject up again with a little more color that helps us grasp more what he's saying, what his issue is with rich people. He writes, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. You have hoarded, it's a very important word for today's topic, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. See, the issue here isn't money or wealth. The issue is, is that the person who had money and wealth were hoarding it. To hoard money is to amass it and store it and hide it and keep it for oneself. The issue is not the money. The issue with these rich people is that they were not paying their employees fairly. The issue with these people is that their luxury was self-indulgence. Money wasn't the problem. The problem is the person who makes money all about themselves, not using money to do good, not using money to bless others, not using money to treat others generously. A more positive take on this is found in Paul's first letter to Timothy. I like this passage a lot because he essentially offers the same kind of warning that James does, but he does it in a way a little more palatable, gives us a little bigger picture here of what's going on as it concerns the subject of wealth. First Timothy chapter 6 Verse 17, Paul writes to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Again, I think that this is just beautiful. Command those who are rich in this world not to feel bad that they're rich, but to not be arrogant about their riches either, but to put their hope in God who who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. He's even saying to, to those who are rich in this uh, setting that they can enjoy the things that God has so richly provided. But then he says, command them to do good. Command them to be rich in good deeds. Command them to be generous. Command them to be willing to share. This way they end up with something more important than money because something then eternal and of eternal importance is happening that allows them to lay up treasures in heaven where uh, they can take hold of the life that is truly life. So let's put it this way. As I kind of finish introducing this uh, parable today, you can be a rich fool or you can be a rich steward. And so let's dig into the parable of the rich fool for a few minutes to 
to explore this idea further. Here's the parable, Luke chapter 12, verses 13. First of all, it's set up with these words. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, and this is in line now with a larger context of what's going on in this section of Luke. Then he said then, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Greed is about going after money the wrong way with a lack of faith, thinking that you, the more you get, the more you hoard, the more you keep is somehow better. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. So here's the parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very, by the way, this is the first time God actually shows up as a character in any of the parables that Jesus told. It's in response to this guy's attitude about greed and hoarding and making it all about himself and so on. God shows up and God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus offers this commentary on the parable when he says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. So let me spend the rest of my time getting at this this way. Let's talk about three contrasts between a rich fool and a rich steward. Three contrasts between a rich fool and a rich steward. The first is the contrast between fear and faith. Fear and faith. Now let me just pause, take a deep breath, and acknowledge that for many people, um, any discussion about money in any setting, but maybe even particularly in church, is an uncomfortable experience. And I acknowledge that as how many people experience that kind of discussion. But I want to say this again. This is very important. Jesus talked a lot about money. In fact, Luke in his gospel, as well as in the, bo- in the book of Acts, which Luke wrote, nearly every chapter has references to people's attitudes and experience with money and possessions. It's just a hugely important subject. Uh, I don't, uh, most of you who are around here a lot, you know that typically the only thing I say about money on most Sundays, probably you know, close to 50 Sundays a year is just thank you for your faithfulness in tithing and your generosity in giving. But every once in a while, as I am trying to teach the whole of Scripture and about the things that seem to be important to God, things that were clearly important to Jesus, I deal with subjects that might make us feel a little uncomfortable. And so um, I don't know what to say to you except uh, take a deep breath uh, I think that you might appreciate this discussion before it's all over, and I will say this. One of the most important things that can happen in the life of a follower of Jesus is to get their heart right about this issue. 
it just somehow or another releases all kinds of good things in our lives, okay? It's not the only thing, but it's a very important thing. All right, so the larger context of this parable, the parable of the rich fool, is in in this section of the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is addressing fear and anxiety and a lack of a sense of security that people had then, much as people have now, about money. And he starts this discussion in Luke chapter 12, verse 4, by uh, offering a, a, a teaching that seems kind of strange. But what I want you to see, and the reason I show you this open Bible here, is because I read the parable of the rich fool from Luke 12, 13 through 20. That's the section on your left. But he starts this discussion about money Luke does in his gospel earlier in Luke chapter 12, verse 4, and then I'll show you in a moment, you'll see on the right there will be an expansion of the discussion because he follows the parable of the rich fool about money as well. And the headline here is he's trying to get people not to worry about money. That's what Jesus is trying to do here. He's trying to say, if your heart will be right about this, if you'll trust God in this, God's going to take care of you. Don't be anxious, okay? And here's how the teaching starts. It sounds odd, but Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That doesn't sound like a very positive passage, does it? But it it actually is when you then read what he's about to say. And let, let me explain it as best I can. Jesus is saying, fear God which is what he means when he says, fear him who has authority to throw you into hell, and et cetera, et cetera. He said, fear God, take God seriously, because when you fear God, you won't be afraid of anything else, including you're not gonna worry about money and things. Okay, so let's look at it again. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid. Fear him who, after your body's been killed, uh, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He says, fear God. And then he says, now comes the comforting part, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. That's my least favorite passage in the Bible. And then he says, don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Now, I know if you're kind of new to the Bible, you're saying, wait a second. He just said, fear God. Then he just said, don't be afraid. And that's exactly right, because he's saying, if you fear God, meaning not if you're shaking before him in terror, he's saying, if you reverence God, if you awe God, if you believe in God, if you believe what God says in his word, if you trust God, these are all the ways that we should be thinking about what it means to fear God. If you have faith in God, you won't be afraid. See, here's the truth of scripture. If we have faith in God, in God, we are not afraid of anything. So he's saying, if you really fear God, you're not going to worry about where your next meal's coming from because your fear in God is faith in God that God will take care of you. Hey, God knows every sparrow that falls. God can number every hair on your head. He knows every detail of your life. He knows how much money is in your checking account. He knows what's going on with your IRA during a time of, of the stock market 
market not doing great and inflation rising. He sees it. He knows every number down to the decimal point. God's got you. If you'll fear God, you'll know he sees what's going on in your life and you don't need to be afraid of anything else. And see, so he starts this teaching on not being afraid about money and things and not having an improper you're going to have to go get it yourself kind of attitude about money. So he, so he starts this in Luke 12, 4. I just read you what's on the left. And then the, he says a couple other things. And then he moves into the parable of the rich fool, which goes down to verse 28. And then he picks up. It's probably, you probably can't see it from there. He moves back further into a section called Do Not Worry. And he carries this thought all the way through um, Luke chapter 12, and I won't even comment a whole lot on this because it's self-explanatory. He says, he says, fear God, you won't be afraid of anything else. God's got you. Then he gives a parable of the rich fool. Don't be greedy. Life isn't about things anyway. Don't go after things properly. And then he immediately follows it like this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. How much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And by the way, it sounds like nice clothes. He's talking about Solomon and all of his splendor. He's talking about how beautifully he clothed the flower, all right? So he's not even saying, you know, anyway, I'm you know, reading a little bit into the text, but I'm acknowledging it. And verse 29, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. What's the headline here? Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, what's going on here? First of all, when we fear God, we're not afraid. We believe his word, we do what he says to do, we don't worry because he knows, because we know he'll take care of us. We have a proper attitude, and the attitude is we fear God, we put his kingdom first, and we know that he sees what we need, and he promises to feed us, and he promises to clothe us, and Jesus is basically saying, do you believe that or not? And if you don't believe that, you don't fear God. Remember, to fear God means to believe him and what he says. So, what's a contrast to a rich fool? Um, to me, a contrast to a, a rich fool is a rich steward. So, something else that's said in this passage that, that, that would give us pause is Jesus says towards the end there, sell all of your possessions and give the money that you get from selling your possessions to the poor. And... Um, 
Um, it's important always, guys, to look at anything that's said in Scripture in its proper context. And its proper context has to do with what's going on around it. It also has to do with the bigger picture, in this case, of what the New Testament teaches, the bigger picture of what the whole of Scripture teaches. And it's clear in the whole of Scripture that we are not all literally called to sell our possessions and to, and to take the money and to give it to the poor. In fact, it's interesting here. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to clothe you, and I'm going to clothe you really nice. It's going to look better than, you know, I, he, he's kind of like he's saying, I, I'm the best personal shopper you have ever had because I, I, I can clothe you better than Solomon was clothed better than yeah, I'm going to take care of you okay he's telling them that if they fear him and put him first he's going to give them what they need and even more he's going to give them what they want this idea of selling our possessions speaks of an attitude of the heart that says I hold loosely to what I have I acknowledge it came from you I'll do with this whatever you ask me to do it's about our heart being right and he may ask someone here to sell all their possessions and give it to the poor if he does you need to do that if you fear God you'll do that and you won't be afraid of the repercussions of having done that. For most of us, though, he just wants our heart to be right about money and things and for us to not be attached to them, but to hold those things loosely. Okay? So rich fools, rich stewards. A couple of examples today. Actually, I'm going to run out of time. I'll go ahead and tell you that. And So I, I was going to do three examples of, of rich stewards. Um, uh, I'll only do two. Uh, one of them uh, is Richard Stearns. Richard, uh, Richard Stearns was the CEO of Parker Brothers, the CEO of Linux, uh, very successful, made a lot of money, had a heart for the poor, felt called to leave Linux and to become the president of World Vision, the largest Christian charity in the world. He still was a, a, was a wealthy man, but his income was dramatically sliced, and uh, everything about his life changed when he made this decision. He, he writes a couple books that are just fabulous, and because he had to deal with, uh, I think, uh, his heart about giving up so much income in order to go do what he felt like God called him to do, he writes a lot about about money and how it affects us. And, and here's a section where uh, he, he gives a beautiful example of what I would call rich steward as opposed to a rich fool, someone who fears God, someone who seeks the kingdom first, someone who's not afraid and doesn't worry about money. But he, he had to go through a process to get there. All right. He's actually writing about tithing here. He's, he writes, I have often thought of the tithe in a different way as a kind of inoculation against the power that money can sometimes hold over us. Guys, if you hold tightly to money, it'll mess you up. By cheerfully giving away, I'll back to Stearns, a small portion of our money, we become immune to the corrupting power it can have on our lives. When we tithe, not out of obligation, but out of love and obedience for God, we are making the bold statement that money has no power over us. And then he tells this great story. In 1987, the largest single-day stock market crash since 1929 took place. In one day, Renee and I, his wife, lost more than one-third of our life savings and the money we had put aside for our, co our kids' college education. I was horrified and became like a man obsessed each night working past midnight, consumed with anguish over our lost money. One night... Renee came and sat beside me. Honey, she said, this thing is consuming you in an unhealthy way. It's only money. 
We have our marriage, our health, our friends, our children, and a good income. So much to be thankful for. You need to let go of this and trust God. She suggested we stop and pray about it, something that hadn't occurred to me. So we did. At the end of my prayer, to my bewilderment, Renee said, now I think we need to get out the checkbook and write some big checks to our church and the ministries we support. We need to show God that we know this is his money and not ours. And he says, I was flabbergasted at the audacity of this suggestion. But in my heart, I knew she was right. So that night, we wrote some sizable checks, put them in envelopes, addressed to various ministries, and sealed them. And that's when I felt the wave of relief. We had broken the spell that money had cast over me. It freed me from the worries that had consumed me. I actually felt reckless and giddy. And I prayed, God, please catch us because we just took a crazy leap of faith. And he did. That's the way a rich steward thinks about things. What are you afraid of? God. Meaning, I respect him, I awe him, I reference him, I believe in him. What are you seeking first? His kingdom. And how do you feel about that? Peace. Because I'm not going after it. I'm holding it like this. All right. So it's interesting to me, and a couple more things before I move on my next point. So when Jesus told this parable, the rich fool, he was responding to a question that he related to greed. And he said to him, Luke 12, 15, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. What is greed? Greed is a lack of faith. Greed is, I'm going after this thing to accumulate things for myself. And, you know, the person who has more toys wins and all that kind of thing. Greed, be, in, be on your guard. Life does not consist on, on, in an abundance of possessions. But it's interesting to note that on one hand, Jesus is saying that, that if we put him first, he will give us what we need and more, but at the same time, he's warning against greed. See, there's this fine balance between having an appropriate desire for more and having a desire about, for more that's obsessive and that has at its root a lack of faith and greed. It's like, this is the best way I can figure out how to say it, it's good to want more even money and nice things, if we have our heart in the right place and are putting God first. But if we just want it for our own pleasure and self-indulgence, we are fools. Hey guys, in this time of financial uncertainty, in this time of rampant inflation and ever higher interest and talk of perhaps a coming recession, don't resort to fear don't resort to fear. Fear God. Do not fear anything else. And know if you put him first, he'll take care of you. And your heart's going to be right in a way that's very important to everything else in your life. Okay, here's the second contrast between a rich steward and a rich fool. It's, it's the difference between thinking it's mine and thinking it's his. Much of a proper view of money in Scripture comes down to a question of ownership. Who owns what you have? Do you own it or does God own it? See, God wants us to remember where our wealth comes from. Jesus, when he started this parable, said, he said, the ground, emphasis on ground, of a certain rich man produced an abundant harvest. 
The ground of a certain rich man produced an abundant harvest. See, the ground produced it, not this man. It didn't mean he didn't work hard, but God created in the ground the ability to produce, in this case, a crop that brought this man great wealth. So, so in its origin, in its source, God created the ground that was able to produce this wealth. There are a lot of factors to consider in the creation of wealth, including our own hard work, but ultimately our money and possessions come from God. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 17 is a beautiful passage. God says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Whatever you have, God gave you the ground, he gave you the gifts, he gave you your mind, he gave you the opportunity, he gave you the relationships. See, if, 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 if you really fear God, you believe that. And you know then that you are not the source, ultimately, of your own success. And that what your success produces is not yours. It's like... Um, David, King David said in a very famous passage in the Chronicles, he's receiving an offering for a temple that he's uh, leading his son Solomon to build. And he says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Now, that's how a rich steward thinks. But the way a rich fool thinks is like this fool, God called him that, what this fool said in Luke chapter 12. Notice the number of times he uses personal pronouns in this parable. Luke chapter 12, verse 17, he thought to, notice the only person he thinks to is himself, and the only person he talks to is himself, and the only thing he's doing anything for is himself. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your very life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Of course, this leads to the idea of stewardship, one of the most important life principles I can possibly share. The idea of stewardship says that we are stewards of God's property. A steward understands that God is the owner of all we are and have, and that we are stewards of God's property. It's not mine, it's his. This is where we have to start in our thinking about any discussion of money and things. It's not mine, it's his. A classic passage on stewardship is uh, found in, again, in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus tells a story about uh, a, a rich man who left a manager to watch over his property, and this manager is proven to be a shrewd manager. And Jesus commends this guy for shrewdly managing this other guy's property. And then Jesus says, Luke chapter 16, verse 11, so now he's making application of that parable. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? 
There's worldly wealth, and then there's something more important than worldly wealth. There are true riches. We have to prove trustworthy in handling worldly wealth in order to get the thing better than worldly wealth. So Jesus said, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, being a good steward or a good manager over what I've given you, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money. What's he talking about here? He's talking about money. He's saying you have worldly wealth. If you manage it well, God will make sure that you have things better than worldly wealth. But you've got, you can't serve money. You have to serve God with your money. A uh, popular television show was looking for a place to uh, uh, film a scene that involved cars driving on a beautiful lawn, destroying it and destroying the landscaping. They shopped for a site and found a, a home in South Florida with a, a verdant lawn and beautiful landscaping and took the risk of knocking on the door and asking the folks who lived there if they could use their lawn to shoot a scene in this popular show. They, they told these people that they were going to tear their lawn up, but they were so enamored with the idea that they'd have their house in a popular television show, they said, it's fine. And so a few days later, the crew shows up and stuntmen are driving through the lawn, tearing it up, destroying beautiful gardens. All the flowers are crushed. A tree gets knocked over. And then the neighbor called the owner who lived in New York. The owner was just renting his property to these folks. And, uh, of course, this created quite a dilemma because they were renters. They weren't owners. They didn't have rights. They only had responsibility. They couldn't use that property or allow it to be used in whatever they, way they pleased. They could only use it the way the owner wanted it to be used. Do you get the point? Guys, when it comes to everything in life, we are renters. We are not owners. It's his. It is not ours. We use it in the way that he tells us to, and when we do that, we are stewards. And when we're faithful in that, he makes us rulers over much. Another example of a rich steward is John D. Rockefeller. Certainly not a perfect man, but a man who was well known for his sincere Christian faith. You, you'll remember that John Rockefeller was the richest man in the world for a long, long time. His family still has vast wealth. Uh, but Ro I had read at some point that Rockefeller had said that he had tithed uh, from every dime he had ever made since he was a small child, but I, I didn't really know that much about Rockefeller. And then I picked up Ron Chernow's um, marvelous biography of, of, of Rockefeller called Titan. Uh, Chernow's the guy that wrote Hamilton. Uh, he, I've read several of his biographies. He, he does a great job. So I have been slowly reading this huge book. You know, it's one of these 900,000 page books over the last number of months. And the thing that has shocked me, I had absolutely no idea, is that much of the book of necessity to tell the story of Rockefeller's life is about Rockefeller's charitable pursuits. It ended up becoming the consuming passion of his life. He ended up setting up his foundation in a way that was new uh, in 
how people thought about how to give money away because he was on a mission to give away vast amounts of wealth and he gave away vast amounts of wealth, a lot of it to Christian churches and Christian ministries and then to other great causes as well. Here's uh, part of what Chernow writes. He writes, Rockefeller was fantastically charitable from boyhood. By 1859, when he was 20, his charitable giving surpassed the 10% mark. And then later, Chernow writes, as to why God had singled out John D. Rockefeller for such spectacular bounty, Rockefeller always adverted to his own adherence to the doctrine of stewardship. Now, I'm surprised, you know, reading this book to, all, to find a marvelous discussion of stewardship that goes on for many, many pages. Rockefeller always adverted to his own adherence to the doctrine of stewardship, the notion of the wealthy man as a mere instrument of God, a temporary trustee of his money who devoted it to good causes. And he quotes Rockefeller as saying, it has seemed as if I was favored and got increase because the Lord knew that I was going to turn around and give it back. I remember clearly when the financial plan, Rockefeller said, if I may call it so, of my life was formed. It was out in Ohio. This is what the richest man in the world said. I remember when the financial plan of my life was formed. It was out in Ohio under the ministration of a dear old minister who preached, get money, get it honestly, and then give it wisely. I wrote that down in a little book. And then Chernow comments, this echoed John Wesley's dictum, if those who gain all they can and save all they can will likewise give all they can, then the more they will grow in grace. That's a picture of a rich steward. I'm a trustee of the wealth I've been given, and I am an instrument that God is using. Uh, By the way, before I move to my last point and wrap this up, It's important that I note that when I use the term stewardship, when we use the term stewardship here, we're not just talking about tithing and giving. It's a a big part of it. But it's a whole life picture, guys. That's why I'm so glad that our team prepared uh, uh, the stuff about uh, Ramsey Plus and how that our church has invested actually a lot of money so everyone here can have a free membership to Ramsey Plus and learn about life and the big picture of money. You know, stewardship is about it's about everything to do with money and the things that we have it's about how we raise our kids it's about everything in life is his but as it concerns finances it's about budgeting you know simple little thing my parents taught me you don't spend more money than what you have that's a big so so how do you know what you have you have to you, you have to budget it's about saving saving as opposed to hoarding hoarding is about amassing things for myself saving is about being in a position where i can have financial freedom so i can be obedient to god about things in my life without the worry of money do you understand the difference that may be you know that you know i had a guy stop me out in the lobby a little uh, while ago has a a, a, a world class uh, education uh, uh, and, and MBA from an Ivy League school and he's thinking about what to do with the rest of his life and he's feeling called to do something in the world of charity but he said to me he said you know I don't have enough money yet to be able to make that decision do you understand so we save so that when we're feeling called to do things we can go do the thing without having to worry about money so that's different than hoarding see or we save so there's financial freedom in other ways 
wave. We, we, we save because we know at some point we're going to feel a tug on our heart to give a lot of money to this or that. And, 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 and if that tug comes, we have, the, have it there to do. So financial stewardship is about budgeting. It's about saving. It's about investing. It's about uh, uh, insuring yourself against loss. It's about, it's about all kinds of things. It's about not getting into consumer debt. It's about getting out of debt. It's about not using a credit card that you can't pay off at the end of the month because the interest rates are exorbitant and sinful and unjust. And so you not you can't be controlled by that, so you don't do that. You cut those things up if you can't pay them off at the end of every month, right? I'm saying things I know you know, but I feel like I need to say it because I want you to know that the stewardship discussion is about this whole picture of being managers of what's God's in our life. And then finally, let me say, someone started to clap. That never happens during a money sermon. I'll take it. I need it, in fact. In fact, I think I'm just going to sing, if I were a rich man. It's the last time I saw you guys respond to anything, but hey, uh, I'm going to get over it. Uh, I'm kidding, kind of kidding. Here's the third thing, and I'm going to wrap this thing up. It's hoard versus honor. The contrast between a rich fool and a rich steward. The third is hoard versus honor. The way to be a rich steward rather than a rich fool is not to hoard things for ourselves, but to be rich toward God. How do we know that? That's what Jesus said in this parable. God said to him, the, the rich fool, you fool. And then he, Jesus said, this is how it will be with whoever stores things up for themselves but is not rich toward God. Now I want to note, guys, I'm going to be very clear, I'm going to be very straightforward about, about this. The idea of being rich toward God in this parable is specifically about money. That's what the parable is about. Without question, there are many ways that we can express generosity. We can be generous with our time, we can be generous with our talent, we can be generous in our attitude towards others. All of those are very important parts of what it means to follow Jesus. But that's not what this parable is about when it's talking about being rich toward God. It's talking about money. I think sometimes people believe they can be generous in a variety of ways, but tight-fisted with money and still be considered a generous person. And I, from my understanding of Scripture, question that assumption. Now, I'm not God, so I can't offer judgment on it. I can only say, I don't see that. Part of living a generous life is not being tight-fisted with money. I donate my time, I don't, but I'm holding on to this. Jesus talked a lot about that because where our treasure is is where our heart is. This parable is about money, and to be rich toward God here is to be generous with money. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. We can be rich toward God with our time. We can be rich. I'm not saying that that's not true. I'm just saying that's not what this parable is about, and I'm teaching about this parable today. It's about money. One of the unavoidable teachings of Scripture is what Jesus said later in this section when he said, your heart will be where your treasure is. We know that we have our hearts right about God and money when we are rich toward God and honor God with our wealth. Classic passage, and guys, I'm almost finished. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 
Honor the Lord with your wealth. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. There are always blessings associated with this kind of way of thinking and this kind of lifestyle. How do we honor God? According to this text, we honor God. I'm talking about Proverbs 3, 9 through 10, as well as Luke. New Testament, Old Testament, life principle. We honor God when we make him first with our money. This is why tithing and giving is considered to be an act of worship. By the way, one thing, probably over 90% of us who are part of TLCC do the bulk of our our tithing and giving online or texting or uh, Sharon and I do auto withdrawal. So when we get paid, the first thing that happens is the bank automatically withdraws 10% plus offerings from our account. But the the thing that, as wonderful as that is, and I'm glad that that's what so many of us are doing, it's what we should be doing, is that we're not mindful about it. It used to be, you know, if, if you were raised in a church like I was, they made a big deal about the offering every week. I think sometimes spent too much time on it. But nonetheless, I appreciate the, the value they put on the idea that people were worshiping God by their tithing and giving. It was an act of worship. So somebody, you'd fill out an offering envelope and you'd put that money in there and you'd, you know, sometimes they'd uh, have you hold it up and say some prayer, you know, but it was an act of worship, see? And, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm thinking this week a little convicted as I'm reading this that when I look at that auto withdrawal thing coming in, out of our account that I need to be mindful of the fact that represents an act of worship. It's a big deal. It's a big deal for someone to say, I'm taking a portion of my income, and God, I am honoring you. I'm doing this as an act of worship. See, when we worship God with money, we prove that we do not worship money. When we worship God with money, we prove that we do not worship God with money. The fundamental activity of honoring God with our wealth is to bring him the first fruits. That's what Proverbs 3 teaches us, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. And you know this, this is a good opportunity to remind us of this, that it's commonly understood that the first fruits is a reference to the tithe. Tithe literally means 10%. That's what the word actually means. It means 10%. And a tithe is the first fruits of one's increase or income. The first fruits are the first and best. We give God our first and our best. This is how we honor Him. It's part of how we show we fear, we believe in Him. And Scripture indicates that the act of tithing tells us that we put God and his kingdom first in our lives. I love the paraphrase of Deuteronomy 14.23, which says the purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your lives. And whereas scripture teaches that everything we have is his, it also teaches us that the tithe is not to be touched or used by us except to return it back to him to use for his purposes. This is really important. Leviticus chapter 27. By the way, uh, why is there so much in the early part of Scripture, the Pentateuch, about this? Because they're trying to explain what Abraham started doing under faith before the law. He tithed in response to his covenant with God. And Moses came along and gave shape and form and substance to that, explaining what a tithe was. 
Uh, Jesus came along in the New Testament and said, you should tithe. Yes, he offered it as a moral imperative, while having your heart right about other things as well. But here's a classic passage when we learn about what a tithe is, a tithe of everything from the land. The land produced crops, which was their form of money in an agrarian culture. A tithe of everything belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. What's holy to the Lord? The tithe. One-tenth, another translation, of the produce of the land belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. And this is pretty much the last thing I'll say. At the end of every service for years... Typically, the only thing that I say about giving is this. I say, thank you for your faithfulness in tithing and your generosity in giving. I had someone ask me last week why I use those specific words, and I thought it was worth explaining. You hear me say it so often, and I'll t- this, here's where this, is, this comes from. This is what I was taught as a child by my parents, by the church I was raised in. It's what I've practiced my whole life. I'm so grateful. I'm so blessed beyond anything I ever could have imagined, and I think my parents putting this in me is a big part of, 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 of some of the blessing that I've received in my life, okay? And this is part of what I was taught, and the more I study Scripture, the more I believe this to be true. You cannot be generous with a tithe. A tithe is a tithe. A tithe is 10%. So a little kid in K-Port who has a, you know, they get a $5 allowance, which is a lot more allowance than I got when I was a kid, but they get a $5 allowance, and they put 50 cents in, and they say, this is my tithe is the same as someone who gets a million-dollar bonus and tithes $100,000 on the bonus. A tithe is a tithe is a tithe is a tithe. A tithe is a tithe. We can't be generous with it. It's not ours. It's not ours to make a decision on. It's holy to the Lord. We don't touch it. And therefore, I like to say we don't give a tithe. We return a tithe. Now, he says then, the tithe is holy. It's his. We return it. And then the other 90%, then we get to make decisions about that. That's where generosity shows up. It's when we, from the part that's ours, it's his, but you understand he's saying you can do with this, it's up to you what you do with this. That, that part, that's where I get to make decisions about generosity. It's not what he already says is his, it's what he says is mine that I get to turn around and say, hey, I want to give this to you and your purposes because this is generosity. This is so important to what's going on in our hearts, guys. The tithe and giving is how God's work gets done on the earth. It's how God decided to finance his kingdom business in the earth. That's that's how it happens. Uh, And and without question, you know, that's a an important part of what's happening in any local church that you, you hope that people are faithful and generous so you can fulfill the mission of the church. But just as important and maybe more important for us as individuals is it's a key way that God's work gets done in our hearts. This is for many people. This presents a crisis of faith. And that's okay. That's okay. So, you know, we, we're, we're all growing. We're all learning. And, and some of you are hearing this teaching for the first time, and you're saying, what? And that's okay. It's a discussion we can continue to have. But I want you to know that something I want for you. We taught our kids this. You know, it's just fundamentally important is to know that when we get our heart right about money, we have the opportunity to be 
a rich steward. And a very unlikelihood that we'll be a rich fool. And this is important to our lives with God. Having said that, would you please stand with me?